The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. I also want to thank Professor John Searle, filmmaker Bradley Lockerman, and chief engineer of Serial Magnetics, Fernando Morris, for joining us during last Friday's chat. We had a few technical glitches, but all in all, we got our questions answered and had a great time. The text is available at the forum, and the audio is in the member's audio player, next to Professor Searle's show. You have to love Professor Searle's humor. This was another Veritas Live, a bonus show for last week. We'll do it again with other guests in the near future. Tonight's special guest is Dr. Richard Souter. What's in the basement of the secret empire, underground and undersea bases? Those of you who have heard this show for a while know that when I focus on a specific topic, I take my time to find someone who can speak with authority. Endorsed by Richard Dolan, one of my favorite researchers, Dr. Richard Souter will take us where others have not gone. Dr. Richard Souter will be with us shortly. 
it has been brought to my attention that some of you are not receiving our newly designed Veritas weekly newsletter. In most instances, it's because it's landing in your spam folder, review your spam or junk folder, and more than likely you will find it there. Otherwise, it may be that your internet service provider is blocking us, so you may want to check with them. This is another benefit to members. It is a weekly newsletter, but it's also sent when the new show is available to you, usually hours in advance. Your feedback is always appreciated, and many of the changes that you see are because of people like you who submit ideas. Sometimes the feedback is almost humorous. Let me share a few with you. One person asked if I could remove the bumper music because she listens in her apartment, and when the music plays during the intermission, her neighbors complain. She asked if we could get rid of the music. Unfortunately, that is not possible. Our music is an integral part of the show. However, I did provide a sensible solution for her. Headphones. And here's another humorous suggestion that really got the idea to work. I'll read it verbatim. Quote, Mel, I want to tell you how much I dislike sirens. You start and end your show with sirens. I often try to go to sleep listening to your great stuff, but it is Big Brother that uses sirens. Please, just for my sleep, get rid of the sirens. I don't think you're the cops, huh? Joe, unquote. Well, Joe, your wish was granted a few weeks ago. At least we removed the sirens at the end, not the ones at the beginning. I just forgot to mention it. Now the show ending won't give you any more paranoia, and I hope you can fall sound asleep. You see, you can make a difference, and what we can, will implement your ideas. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, the Manticore Forum, and the Veritas Chatroom. Don't wait. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. Next week's special guest is Melinda Leslie, Abductions and Covert Ops. And to Cliff Hive fans, you won't have to wait much longer. He's coming up soon, this month. Visit our website for updates. And this is another reminder that from now until April the 30th, I'm giving you six months instead of three if you are ready, willing, and are 100% capable to transcribe a show. Go to the free subscription link of our website for more information. Remember, you must contact us on or before April the 30th. After that, the regular three-month offer will return. And now, get ready to go deep underground and undersea, Dr. Richard Souter can conclusively report that there is no longer any doubt the secret underground bases are real. But what is happening down there? What's going on underground and undersea? UFO lore is peppered with accounts of facilities jointly run by terrestrial humans and others. The Nazis lost the war, but won the peace. Have they continued their efforts for world domination underground? If you think this is science fiction, stop this audio now. If you're ready to go as deep as we can go, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. music you hear right here on the very test show is supplied by the independent artists from jamendo.com if you hear a song you like 
go over to our homepage, veritasshow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at jamendo.com. This is Professor John Searle, and you are listening to Veritas. Beginning in early childhood, Dr. Richard Souter experienced first-hand contact with a variety of paranormal phenomena that have left him a bit puzzled and thoroughly persuaded that there is much more to Earth and to human perception and consciousness than the mainstream American culture believes. Some of Richard's favorite research and reading interests are underground and underwater bases and tunnels, electronic mind control, freedom technology, human prehistory, a remote antiquity, the Kundalini energy and alternative thought patterns. His underground and underwater bases and tunnels research commenced in 1992 and continues to the present day. He has a bachelor's degree in sociology, a master's in Latin American studies, a master's in forestry, and a doctorate in political science. He is the author of five books, Underground Bases and Tunnels, What is the Government Trying to Hide, Kundalini Tales, Underwater and Underground Bases, and his most recent book, and the focus of this interview, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files, and soon to be made available, The Sauter Report, Notes from the Underground, a 770-page compilation of many of the raw technical, military, and government documents on which the nuts and bolts, engineering aspects of his research, are grounded. Dr. Sauter has appeared on numerous radio and TV programs, has spoken at several conferences, and his writings and interviews have appeared in many publications. And directly from Pennsylvania, Dr. Richard Sauter. Hello, Dr. Sauter, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Well, I'm doing just fine. Thank you, Mel. I'm happy to be here. It's my pleasure. May I call you Richard? Yes, you may. Great. It's interesting how we converge with many of our guests, just to let the audience know. I recently had my favorite UFO historian on the show, Richard Dolan, and we started talking about underground bases. And of course, your name came up not only because he respects and admires your work, and he's your friend as well for many years, but he's also the publisher of your latest book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files. But also, Dr. Sauter, as far as I can remember, I've been trying to get someone on the show who can speak about this subject with authority. And knowing how much Richard Dolan endorses your work, I think we have the right person. I've read your bio, but give us some background of yourself and how you got interested in finding what's under our feet and under the sea, too. Well, you know, um, I uh, grew up in Tidewater, Virginia, and when I was a a little boy back in the 50s already, um, there were a lot of UFOs that were seen there. Uh, It was something that was discussed locally, certainly in my family. My father was aware of that. So from from an early age... Um, I was aware that there was more to reality than um, what we're enculturated to believe by the mainstream culture. Uh, As well, at the age of three, um, again in Tidewater, Virginia, this would have been in the spring of 1958, I was visited by an entity whom I named The Bone Lady. Uh, Of course, a three-year-old does not have a very large 
working vocabulary. So um, that was the best name I could come up with. And even were I to encounter the bone lady today, I might name her the bone lady um, even today as a as a grown man. But that was perhaps the most important encounter that I have ever had with another sentient being in my life. Uh, to this day, I can't tell you precisely who or what the bone lady, exactly what the bone lady is, but I can tell you she is a personality of stature, a personality to contend with, a personality that you would trifle with at your peril. Uh, I don't know why. I can't tell you in so many words why she um, more or less contacted me, but she did come to visit me directly and establish uh, a close personal connection with me. Uh, she transferred a lot of information to me, obviously not in a verbal form, because a three-year-old is not very verbal. Uh, nonetheless, there was a download of a certain amount of information from her to me. Uh, I consider her an exceptionally deep being. Uh, I didn't necessarily perceive her as um, human in the way that the average human being would be, but I did perceive her as a discrete personality and an extremely powerful personality virtually beyond the uh, ability of words to convey. Now, that happened to me at the age of three. From that point forward, and I mean from that minute forward, throughout my entire life down to this present second, I no longer had any doubt that there was a great deal more to reality than the average person uh, believes. And from that second, from that minute, from the instant of that encounter, I could no longer ever again in my life under any circumstances be a so-called normal or average person, whatever those words mean. In other words, I have from that time forward, march to the beat of a different drummer, always have and always will. It can't be otherwise, because once you encounter a personality such as the Bone Lady, there's no going back. At that point, um, the lid is off, the, uh, the the bottle and the genie is out, and you can't recork the genie and force her back into the bottle. So that was a very important early formative experience for me. Uh, and then, more recently, uh, when I moved out to the Southwest in the late 1980s to pursue or to continue my graduate studies, I heard people talking about alleged underground bases and high-speed train tunnels uh, underground in that region of North America with, as the stories uh, went, um, purported clandestine elements of the United States military and also um, alleged little gray aliens, and these were supposed to be, these factions, both human and non-human, were supposed to be working cr closely together uh, on very esoteric and obscure um, projects, deep underground. Um, I don't know to this day, I can't prove to this day that that is happening, but I no longer have any question that there are um, a lot of underground bases, as, as one of my sources told me quite plainly. There are many underground bases, and thousands of people are working in them. Now, I want to say that in 1992, I did look into this question a little bit to the extent of writing a brief article for UFO magazine in Los Angeles, 
And in that magazine, I, I simply said that while I couldn't prove or disprove the reality of little gray aliens underground in secret bases, I certainly could say that there are a fair number of underground bases, and some of them are quite large and very sophisticated technologically. So I said that in a brief article for UFO magazine in November of 1992. And then uh, over the holidays in 1992, between Christmas and New Year's, I was awakened out of a sound sleep one night, in the middle of the night, uh, to suddenly discover myself laying on my back in bed in the dark with my body very physically relaxed, extremely relaxed, and my mind very wide awake and mentally clear. Now, I didn't have long to wonder why I had awakened so quickly, why I was so very wide awake and yet so very physically relaxed, because within a matter of seconds, a, a voice began to speak clearly in my ear, very distinctly. It was the voice of a, um, a an adult Caucasian male speaking normally accented late 20th century English. He said to me in his opening uh, line, the underground bases are real. Of course, I knew immediately uh, to what he was referring. Uh, from the very beginning, I never thought and still do not think that I heard the voice of an angel or a demon or an extraterrestrial or God or that I was going mad or that I am mad. I understood immediately that I was hearing the voice of a real flesh and blood man who knew something about these underground facilities and who had probably seen the article I wrote for UFO magazine and had access to some kind of brain transmitter to bring his intelligible voice right into my, to, to, to beam, rather, his voice right into my mind, uh, evidently into my auditory cortex or inner ear. Now, he went on to tell me that um, there are a lot of underground bases. Uh, they can be quite large, just enormous, that there are a lot of people working down there, that there are uh, projects and programs being carried out that people would be just astonished to know about if they did, but in fact they don't, so out of sight, out of mind. Uh, and that um, as he talked, I got the impression of you know, corporations involved, organizations and agencies, lots of high-tech knowledge, um, lots of money being lavished on this, uh, great secrecy and compartmentalization. And as he spoke, that was the type of scenario he was describing for me. So after two or three minutes, he, he, he ceased speaking just as abruptly as he had begun. And so I was left laying there in the dark, of course, you can imagine, with a huge question mark hovering over my head in the air. Well, after a couple of minutes, I decided uh, that that had been very um, informative and unusual, but that I could do nothing about it right then. So I just went back to sleep. The next morning, of course, I remembered what had transpired during the night. And when I awakened, I determined that I would carry out a document search to try to find a paper trail providing evidence of what I had been told during the night. And here's why, even then, I thought that I could probably find a paper trail because I know 
if there's one thing that bureaucracies do, whether they are large corporations, um, government agencies, whether they are civil government agencies or military government agencies, um, and any type of bureaucracy um, generates paper. The bigger the bureaucracy, the bigger the project, the more paper. And I knew that even if they were carrying out secretive compartmentalized activities, that some paper would fall through the cracks. It's just what happens. So I went looking for the paper trail, and brother, did I find a paper trail. I haven't come to the end of it yet, and I have to tell you that judging from what I've seen in the paper trail, which is not classified, uh, and which is only what I can find by going to publicly available archives, reading uh, open literature, open source um, documentation in the open literature, whether it's from military or civil government agencies or from engineering sources, uh, books, magazines, and or talking to people and just keeping my ears open. If I have been able to find out as much as I have in that way, imagine what must be held back in the classified, compartmentalized, top-secret world that has not filtered through the cracks. And that is the part that, 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 I don't want to use the word worries me, but intrigues me the most. You know, as always, I like to establish some chronology. Reading your latest work and the work of others, I noticed that a lot of the know-how and technology used to build our current underground uh, bases started during Nazi Germany. Is that true? And if so, take us back to that time. Yes. Well, in the modern era, and by the modern era, I mean, say, approximately from the 1930s down to the year 2010, that would be true. However, I want to preface that by saying that for thousands of years, for unknown thousands of years, humans have been uh, excavating underground. Uh, for example, I have um, twice toured um, Egypt, and I can tell you just from a casual inspection, uh, from the surface, that the ancient Egyptians built quite a lot underground. Uh, so we have been at this for a long, long time. But you're right, in the modern era, say from the, uh, the early 20th century, say the 1930s, right down to the present day, um, it would be the Nazis in Germany and perhaps also the French. Um, the Nazis started with the so-called uh, Regenwurmlager complex, in what was then the eastern areas of Germany, but is now uh, the western provinces of Poland, and the French in their turn in the eastern part of France with the Maginot Line. Uh, both the Maginot Line and the Regenwurmlager were very similar types of facilities with a similar intent. They were military in nature, underground um, structures uh, comprising troops, uh, barracks for troops, um, weapons, um, storage areas, uh, ammunition, uh, dumps, uh, cafeterias, um, um, you know, uh, medical dispensaries. And then both of them also had um, electrical trains running through them up and down tunnels underground, maybe 100, 150 feet, 200 feet underground. Um, so both the Nazis and the French put a lot of time, money, and effort and technology into constructing these facilities. In the case of the French, with the outbreak of hostilities in World War II, uh, the Nazi military knew the Maginot Line was there and basically just outflanked it. 
so it was made militarily superfluous. Um, on the Eastern Front, um, the Nazis, until the very closing stages of World War II, did not have uh, their defensive positions overrun. But from the 1930 era already, you saw pretty impressive underground uh, construction and tunneling on the part of the French, and even more so on the part of the Germans and the Third Reich. Well, there were two things that also happened during the Third Reich that have um, immediate import for my research. Um, one of them has to do with a man named Hermann Kemper, who was a German engineer, who, starting already in the 1930s and continuing up into the 40s and into World War II, even during the time that hostilities were being waged, uh, was working on something that he called the Rohrbahn. The Rohrbahn is a German word that essentially means a um, tube train, something like that. Now, his, his conception was to make a uh, maglev, very high-speed maglev train and run it through tunnels underground from which the air had been evacuated. So you would have these long vacuum tubes or vacuum um, tunnels, if you will, through which trains would run at a very high rate of speed suspended on an electromagnetic field. Now, Hermann Kemper intended for these trains to go as fast as 3,000 kilometers per hour, which is 1,800 miles per hour. Understand we're talking about the time frame of 1933, 34 to 1938. Uh, so that's already what he was thinking of and felt that he could do it with the technological and industrial base that existed then in uh, the 1930s uh, Nazi Germany. And, and uh, 1,800 miles, that's almost Mach 3. Yes, an underground. Um, so let's leave that there for the moment. I'll come back to that. The other thing that happened uh, in the Third Reich um, <clears throat> and during World War II was that uh, the Nazis had um, uh, a civil engineering agency called the Tote Organization, which was founded by Fritz Tote. Fritz Tote was the father of the German Autobahn, which is which was and is. Uh, the very famous uh, German system of high-speed highways. Right. Well, that was built already in the 1930s. Uh, the German transportation system, even then, was was basically 30 years ahead of what the Americans were doing or thinking about. Uh, it wasn't until the uh, 1950s, late 50s, and 1960s that the Americans really, really built something comparable called the interstate highway system. But the Germans were working on something like that decades earlier. So German technology uh, was already uh, well in advance of American technology in many fields and, and many areas. And, and so you had the Tote Organization, founded by Fritz Tote, at the outbreak of, uh, of World War II. Adolf Hitler asked Fritz Tote to head up a civil engineering agency uh, that would support the German military. And so the Tote Organization did that, and in... The Third Reich, it performed uh, a function that would be analogous to that of the Army Corps of Engineers in the American military system, or perhaps the Navy Seabees. The Navy Seabees support the Navy, the Navy's uh, civil and marine engineering requirements, and of course the Army Corps of Engineers supports the United States Army's 
um, engineering needs and also other agencies sometimes. But uh, both of those are military agencies. In the Nazi system, the TOTE organization remained civilian. However, it served an important support function for the German military during World War II and built a very wide variety of facilities of many sorts, including some impressive underground structures that were very large and well-built. Now, during the war, Fritz Tote died in an airplane crash in 1942, and an engineer by the name of Xaver Dorsch took over many of the administrative functions in the Tote organization um, and reported to Albert Speer. But um, after about a year or so, um, Adolf Hitler found that arrangement uh, unsatisfactory and ordered um, Xaver Dorsch to report directly to him. So the last year and a half or so of the war, Xaver Dorsch reported directly to Adolf Hitler without intermediaries. What Hitler wanted Dorsch to do was to build a series of very deeply buried, very large industrial production facilities that would that would um, support the um, uh, Nazi war effort. Well, the war ended. Um, the the Anglo-American bombing campaign um, was just uh, more than the uh, German military could withstand, military and industry, and. Uh, and so their infrastructure was, was shredded. The war ended, and Xaver Dorsch was taken into um, custody by the American military. I have two uh, fairly extensive documents that he wrote when he was debriefed from by them. Um, one is from about the 1946 era. Another is from the 1949 to 1951 era. Well, he was... Um, Requested, this man was requested by name by uh, by Project Paperclip in nineteen. Uh, that was I, I don't mean to interject, but that that was exactly my next question. Yes. Is there a connection between Project Paperclip and the advent of our underground bases? And you were confirming that there is. Well, well yes, yes, I, I I think there is, and and and, and let me tell you why. And, and and by the way, that's a very perceptive question. The. <clears throat> The um, I have two uh, declassified Project Paperclip uh, memoranda, which I found in in the NASA Historical Archives in downtown Washington D.C. I went there to research uh, the esoteric, if you will, underpinnings of the American um, uh, space program, and I wasn't doing underground bases research. Imagine my surprise when I found these two memoranda, which nevertheless directly addressed uh, this question of underground base construction. Because both memos, which are similar in form and content, specifically request Xaver Dorsch and two other, what what the memo refers to as technicians, um, to be brought to the United States to work for the American military, on its so-called underground plant program. So you can see already in 1947, uh, there was a top-secret underground base construction program, and they were asking for these Nazi experts to be brought over to help the American military on their programs. Now, I know, apart from these two 
Project Paperclip Memoranda. And by the way, for those listeners who don't know, Project Paperclip, in the years following World War II, was a top-secret program of the American military and the American espionage agencies to bring uh, large numbers of Nazi technicians, scientists, and engineers to the United States to work in American industry, for American government, uh, in American engineering, and for the American military. And many of them did come. Uh, Some of them were given false names and false papers, uh, false life histories. Others of them, uh, especially in the cases of the ones who were famous, or relatively so, um, kept their own names and identities. But many of them came. Uh, How many? It could run well into the thousands. No one knows a true number because much of that information is classified to this day. But they did ask Salvador and his three other men. I knew his name, but I didn't know the names of the three other men. I don't know if he came, but I think he may have Mel, and, and I'll say tell you why. Number one, they asked for him. Number two, I have evidence from other sources indicating that, indeed, the American military did begin the American military and other non-military agencies, by the way, did begin an extensive uh, campaign of underground base construction in the years following World War II. And then there's the fact that the American military did have him in their custody uh, at the end of the war. And then he didn't have much of a public career for several years uh, after the end of the war. But then, starting in 1952... Uh, he founded a civil engineering um, uh, company in Germany, and that exists to this day. It's still a, a well-respected engineering company. So it looks like the period from about late spring of 1945 up to about 1951 or 52, he kind of went quiet for a while. I suspect he may have been working with the Americans on their top-secret projects during that period. Uh, Now, there's something else to consider, and that is uh, the remarks I have from Lloyd Dusha from 1987. So we're talking 40 years later. Now, and these are remarks made on the public record. Lloyd Dusha, for those who don't know, was um, the uh, Deputy Director of Construction for the Army Corps of Engineers, Uh, in in the United States Army back in the 1980s. And uh, this man is very heavily connected in the military-industrial complex then and now. He served on a lot of advisory uh, commissions and think tanks and and, uh, government and industry and military study groups. He is very plugged in to the cutting edge of of research and development in the military-industrial complex. Uh, Now, I say that because in 1987, he gave a talk at um, MIT, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in in Boston, and his remarks were made at an engineering conference entitled, um, at, entitled um, that, that had to do, rather, um, with... with uh, constructing underground facilities. And he gave a talk that had to do with um, underground construction. So underground facilities for defense. Now, 
in his talk, he, he stated plainly that after World War II, the um, Corps of Engineers became involved in the design and construction of some very complex and interesting military um, projects, precisely because uh, after World War II, the American military, military had a renewed interest to think underground in his words. And of course, the reason they had that interest was because they went in to Nazi Germany and saw all of the large uh, underground facilities that the Nazis had built. And they also uh, took Saber Dorsch into their custody. And, and of course, he spilled the beans about what he knew. So the Army Corps of Engineers absolutely built on that. There's no question. And he went on to say that um, because of that, they had uh, made the decision to build um, underground facilities. And at one time in his talk, he said, I must deviate a a little because several of the most interesting facilities that have been designed and constructed by the Corps are classified. So he then goes on to say um, that there are projects of similar scope to the huge underground base beneath Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, um, that have been constructed, but that he can't discuss them publicly, uh, only but other than to say that they have been made. So you cannot find on the public record uh, a more clear statement by someone who's plugged into the very highest levels of the military-industrial complex that there are classified, clandestine, top-secret underground bases. And mind you, very complex and interesting facilities. So that's straight from the horse's mouth. And speaking of uh, high-profile Germans who who kept their names, uh, just this is a quick parenthesis for those who are listening. At our forum, we have hundreds and hundreds of pages of FBI and CIA declassified files on Werner von Braun, yes, Nikola Tesla, and Albert Einstein. So who, whoever's listening and is a member, go there and, and download these. Uh, they're, it's great information. But you state that near the entrances of some of these bases in Germany, yes. there were concentration camps. Do you conclude that prisoners of these concentration camps were used as slaves to build these underground structures? And also, since now thousands of people are probably laboring, to build or have built these underground bases in the United States. Who did we use here also? Yeah, you see, that's a good question. Uh, yes, the Nazis did use um, slave labor or prisoners of wars, uh, prisoners of war uh, on their um, engineering projects. There's no question uh, they did that. In fact, uh, one of these facilities that I discuss, discuss in my book uh, was intended for, for the use of the Nazi high command. And they were going to move in there and conduct the war from underground and direct the German government from underground. The war ended before they could uh, move in there from Berlin. But yes, um, they did use uh, prisoners of war and also the inmates at the... um, and the concentration camps for that, as well as for for other industrial purposes. But as to your question uh, that, that gets at the possibility possibility that this could be going on here. I don't rule it out, Mel, at all. Um, There are many underground facilities here, and a lot of them are classified. In my book, I identify uh, more than a score of large ones that I can uh, discuss right off the top of my head that I know of. There assuredly are many, many more scores. 
scores more, no question at all. But because it's so top secret, um, I don't rule out that there could be slave labor involved in this. Uh, Number one, there are very large numbers of people that go missing in our society every year. And Mm -hmm. I wondered about this. You know, it's interesting that um, at the close of World War II, there were many Germans who professed to not know uh, what the German government had been doing during the Third Reich. And you know what? They may have been telling the truth. Maybe they really didn't know. There may well have been a lot of Germans who didn't fully understand what the German government was doing during the 1930s and 1940s, which raises a question. In our day, with the extreme compartmentalization and extreme secrecy associated with classified and top-secret projects, um, are similar atrocities being carried out in the United States, and are we, in effect, the good Germans of our day? And when these things are brought to light, if and when they are brought to light, will we also profess, you know, as the Germans did in the 1940s, will we will we remonstrate? But we had no idea. Uh, and, of course, there were people that was, would say then, well, how could you not know? Because large numbers of people went missing in your society every year. Didn't you inquire into that? Vast sums of money were thrown into your black budget every year by the hundreds of billions of dollars. Did you not ask questions about that? And of course, on both on both counts, the answer is no. Most people do not trouble themselves with either, either of those questions. It's another day for most people, and they don't question that. But how far do these bases go? They can go real deep, Mel. Um, let me put it to you this way. I um, One of my sources told me, in conversation one day because I asked the same question. And the answer I I got was um, to go one mile deep, to build an underground base one mile deep with the state of the art in civil engineering today and mining engineering is child's play. That's how powerful and sophisticated the technology is. And understand um, what happens in mining engineering. Um, I was a a miner for a brief period of time when I was younger. And um, I worked at a salt mine. And um, I actually have driven huge trucks, hundreds of, like 800 feet underground, that that had tires about... I don't know, maybe nine feet, ten feet in diameter. They were they were enormous, and the truck itself was a a gargantuan dump truck that would carry twenty tons of rock salt at a time. Um, so it's just vast, and the average person has no idea that machinery that stupendously huge can work underground, and in fact, it can, and actually, machines far larger than that are boring away or working or working away underground. They are certainly being used in mining engineering, whether you're talking about uh, coal mines or salt mines or, you know, any other kind of mine. Um, and at the same time, in civil engineering, um, there is machinery being used that is equally as powerful. <clears throat> so whether you're talking about the machinery that's, that's used for excavation in, in, in the commercial mining industry, and, and you're talking of uh, mining engineering, or whether you're talking about the machinery in use uh, in, in civil engineering uh, <clears throat> for excavating, I don't know, highway tunnels, railroad tunnels, subways, 
aqueducts, uh, utility conduits, whatever. This machinery is huge, it is powerful, it is very sophisticated, and uh, it's it's going going to work in a big way way deep underground. The tunnel boring machines that are in use in the mining industry and the civil civil engineering industry can be mammoth. Uh, I've seen in the literature the largest size I've see, seen uh, cited in the open literature was on the uh, along the lines of maybe 55 feet in diameter. But it's quite common to have tunnel boring machines that are in the range of 20 feet in diameter or even, even going up to 30 feet or 40 feet or more. Are they nuclear powered? I don't know. Uh, the ones in the open literature are electrically powered. Um, the vast majority of them are electrically powered. Uh, whether any of them are nuclear powered, I don't know. If they are, I haven't found a record of that in the open literature. It would be classified information. I did find some patents for um, nuclear powered tunnel boring machines that were designed at Los Alamos National Lab in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the so called nuclear subterrene which is designed to use a um, small nuclear reactor, I believe um, an SP-100 fission reactor, to circulate liquid lithium through the cutting face of the uh, tunnel boring machine so it more or less um, melts its way through the rock underground, just like a hot knife uh, slicing its way through butter. Right. Uh, And I don't know if those have been built, Mal. The problem with that is... um, Almost anywhere in the world, even in desert areas, uh, you run a risk of running into underground streams or aquifers, mm-hmm. which means underwater water, under underground water sources. And if you do that and you run into liquid water with a tunnel boring machine uh, whose face is heated to 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit. Explosion. You will have the mother of all steam explosions in yeah. a very confined place that would fairly well blow the tunnel boring machine to smithereens and instantly um, kill any operators who were down in the tunnel. So I suspect uh, it's a nice scheme in theory, but practically speaking, it would have limited utility in most geological strata on Earth. However... I have, and I say on Earth advisedly because I have run into, in the literature I've seen, some references to the possible use of this type of nuclear-powered machine on the moon to make tunnels there. Hmm. Of course, we are told there's no water on the moon, liquid or otherwise. Whether there is or not, I don't know. That's the public story. Um, So if the moon really is as dry as toast, as we've been told that it is, then I suppose you could take these things up there and bore tunnels beneath the surface of the moon. Now, if that's being done, then that means that we have a secret parallel space program that (laughs) we're not told about, which I do not rule out, by the way. That's another conversation. But I have found references in the mining literature and in the underground excavation literature to um, mining operations on both the moon and on Mars, not in in hypothetical um, 
um, terms, you understand. I have sure. no hard data that there are mining colonies um, on the moon and on Mars. However, I have found these articles in the uh, in the government and uh, also industrial literature discussing uh, establishing mining colonies on the moon and on Mars. Um, personally, I think maybe it's been done, but if it has been done, it has been done in the black budget realm using technology that we have not been publicly told about. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned the secret space program because at the end of the show, I have a list of questions from members of the audience and one of them deals with the secret space program and I didn't think that you would make a correlation with this, but I'm glad you did. Well, and I want, I want to carry that further because um, in this book, I, um, my latest book, I actually have an illustration that I got from Look Magazine in 1955, the year of my birth, um, just a few months after I was born, Look Magazine, which back then was a very popular um, coffee table, general interest, uh, and news magazine that appeared, I think, weekly, um, <clears throat> but is no longer in uh, publication. But back then, it circulated widely, and millions of people read it every week. Um, so Look Magazine had an article about flying saucers because people were seeing them and talking them talking about them. Um, in that article, there was an illustration, amazingly enough, of an underground flying saucer base in a mountainous wooded region. And the article discussed basing flying saucers in an underground um, facility with camouflaged openings. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I include this illustration in my book and also the citation that raises a host of questions. Where did the author uh, get the idea for that? Where did the the person who illustrated the article get the idea for the illustration? Um, and so, so you have that piece of evidence. And then I have, as I discuss in my book, also uh, run across numerous accounts from various um, quarters um, alleging the existence of underground and undersea bases in which there is some kind of extraterrestrial or alien presence, sometimes in the company of American military, sometimes not. Um, so those stories are out there. They have been for at least 20 or 25 years now. As time goes by, there are more of them uh, that come to light or that surface. So these are very much um, questions that I hold open, and and I um, haven't reached any hard and fast conclusions, though I do tend to believe that um, at least some of these types of stories must be true. And I have a, a few of these questions for later in the show. But as I was saying about the boring machine, the reason why I said nuclear, and you probably know the name Phil Schneider, the late Phil Schneider. Yes. He also also showed some of these images showing these gargantuan machines that supposedly had diamonds uh, to be able to, to do what they do. And after the machine would go through, it would leave almost like glass. That's how 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 flat uh, and, and clean the surface was left behind. And I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, it would drill about one to two miles per day. I doubt that. I doubt that very much. Um, I um, talked with Phil Schneider two times uh, by telephone. He uh, 
assured me he was going to send me documentation supporting his claims. He never sent me anything. Hmm. Um, He made some extraordinary claims which he never substantiated in any way beyond his personal say-so. Now, as far as tunnel boring machines, of course, there are many of them, hundreds, maybe even thousands of them in existence for all I know, but there are certainly many of them. Many companies make them. Many companies and agencies, both military and non-military, use them uh, for tunneling. Uh, There's nothing particularly esoteric about them. Tunnel boring technology has been in use now for half a century or more. Now, when you have a mechanical tunnel boring machine that bores a tunnel through uh, competent rock, it does leave a real smooth circular tunnel as it goes through. And in fact, they do have very hard cutting faces that use either diamond bits, um, just as the um, petroleum industry does, uh, also uses diamond drill drill bits because a metamorphic rock or granitic uh, rock is so hard, you need diamond really to cut through right. it. Um, or if it's in rock that's not quite that hard, you can use some very hard um, metallic alloys. But yes, indeed, you do get a very smooth um, uh, tunnel profile. The more competent the rock and, and, and less fractured the rock, the smoother and cleaner uh, the tunnel face would be. I uh, the tunnel sides would be. I am skeptical of these claims, uh, claims of one mile or more uh, uh, per di- per day uh, for a tunnel boring machine. The highest rates that I've seen in the open literature would be in really good rock with perfect conditions. You'd be lucky to make at a maximum 15 miles per year. Um, it's tricky, dangerous work boring tunnels underground. I have a technical question. Yes. When you have the, the boring machine going through and matter is neither created or destroyed, once it's penetrating, where is that debris, if you will, the, the, the soil, where is it being deposited? Well, in the case of tunnels that are made under sea or under other large bodies of water, and I have been given to believe that's the case, both from things I've been told and also from the uh, the sources that I found in open literature, you simply can eject uh, the tunnel spoil or tailings to the open sea through an airlock. Uh, just shove it over the edge of a cliff uh, under sea and, and be done with it. Now, on land, there are a number of options. Um, you could, when you're tunneling, tunneling through solid rock, mm-hmm. you could simply grind it up for gravel and sell it as a building material. So it's being accumulated behind it, is what you're saying? Yeah. There are conveyor belts that carry okay. the rock away from the cutting face uh, uh, of, the, of the tunnel boring machine. As it cuts the rock and grinds it away uh, in big chunks and slabs, it, it dumps it onto a conveyor belt. And the conveyor belt can be hundreds of feet long. The conveyor right. belt takes it to the back of the uh, tunnel boring machine, and then there are at least a couple of uh, mo probably three major ways you can move it out of the tunnel. You can grind it up and move it out through a slurry pipe, a combination of water and gravel and sand, uh, move it out with water under pressure through a slurry pipe. Um, That's one way. You can move it out on a conveyor belt all the way out of the tunnel, or you can dump it onto, um, you can put a narrow gauge train, as is common in 
in many mining's uh, mines as for example in coal mines it's fairly typical and bring out the tailings on train uh, narrow gauge train cars and then uh dump it or f- process it further once you have it out of the mine but you understand uh, you could make commercial use of that you don't have to dump of it course. anywhere you could grind it up and sell it uh for gravel to the um uh concrete industry for uh, for uses in aggregate uh building material and i i presume that i presume that that is done i have observed uh, in in more than a few cases that there are either um um you know um strip mines or open pit mines or quarries uh facilities of that sort um within a 1 to 20 mile radius of some of the uh locations of underground bases and installations that I have identified in my research making me believe that to a degree these quarries uh strip mines and even some underground mines in one in, in some cases uh, serve as a means of processing this spoil or these tailings and just mixing them in with the other industrial mining operations and selling. Interesting. So you would, in that sense, in that sense, you would have a twofer. You could actually have a legitimate um, commercial mining component. You could actually be, have a commercial mining operation for profit that makes money and even be run by a major mining company, for example. And at the, that would be the front end. At the back end, you could have a clandestine tunneling or underground base operation. And the two could very well operate side by side. Give us a summary of where these, and I know this, this could take forever, but just a summary of where these underground bases are located. All over. Uh, not only all over the United States, but in many other countries around the world. Uh, I couldn't even give you a total number other than to say there are many of them. Whether many means uh, 500 or 5,000 or more, I don't know. Let's just say there are many of them. Now, in the continental United States, well, for instance, you'd be dealing with Site R, which is the Pentagon's alternate command, control, and communication underground base on in the border area between Pennsylvania and Maryland. This would be in the Mid-Atlantic East Coast region of North America. Uh, let's see. Also, in the Mid-Atlantic, you would have um, under the White House. In downtown Washington, D.C., there's a huge underground facility right there. Um, m- multiple levels, uh, deep underground. Uh, it's been there for decades. Um, uh, Mount Weather in the Blue Ridge Mountains in northern Virginia, about an hour's drive west of Washington, D.C., there's a very large, uh, deeply buried underground base there and has been for half a century or more. Um, and there are, on any given day, hundreds of people working underground there. Uh, I think if they button up, they could actually have 2,000 people or more in there. I don't know the the true extent of the place's layout, but it's, even back in the 50s and 60s, it was already very large. Suffice it to say that it is, li- it is literally a high-tech small town buried hundreds of feet deep underground beneath a mountain in northern Virginia. And, of course, there's the famous underground base beneath Cheyenne Mountain out in Colorado. Right. Uh, another famous, uh, other well-known underground bases. Well, let's see. On the East Coast, you would have an underground facility beneath the Pentagon in northern Virginia. 
Um, there are just many uh, at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska, out, just outside of Omaha. There's a very large uh, and sophisticated underground base there. And again, that has been there for really the better part of half a century or more. Um, so there are many of these. And of course, at, um, in, in New Mexico, there's the famous underground facility in the foothills of the Monsanto Mountains, just on the southeastern or the eastern outskirts of Albuquerque, New Mexico. So those would be exa- examples of some of them, and, and there are many others. And not only are there underground bases under our soil, but you also mentioned also underwater, since there are underground tunnels, say in Japan, and between England and France and others. There's no doubt in my mind that undersea bases are probably a reality. Tell us more about how they're built and where do you believe they are? Well, let me give an example from China. Um, The Chinese, um, according to Gordon Thomas, and he's a very uh, respected reporter and investigative author, um, the Chinese have built a facility uh, that answers to this description on Hainan Island in, in southeastern China on the South China Sea, where they actually made huge tunnels under sea for their military submarines to go through. Now, um, for those who don't know, military submarines are quite large. They're hundreds of feet long. They can be four, five, six hundred feet long or more, the size of a you know couple of football fields long, and maybe be t- from from the, from the bottom of their keel to the top of their conning tower. Um, they could easily be a hundred feet in that dimension. Uh, so they are huge, and of course they can carry maybe 150, even 200 or more personnel. So these are are, are enormous um, uh, vessels. So you can imagine the size of the tunnel that you would need to make make deep under sea for these huge submarines to actually sail through. Nonetheless, uh, Gordon Thomas reports that the Chinese have made 11 of these tunnels in the South China Sea, and the submarines come in through these tunnels from, from underwater, and they come in underground to Hainan Island and dock at an underground uh, submarine base that has actually been excavated beneath Hainan Island. So there's an example from China. Now, I was told already back in the early 1990s that the American Navy has uh, facilities like that on both the east and the west coast of the United States. And I also understand that the Russians have something like that <clears throat> up on their northern coast, not too far from Murmansk, maybe about 180 miles from Murmansk, to pull their Typhoon-class uh, ballistic missile submarines into. And the Typhoons are even larger than the Americans' Ohio-class Trident submarines, which are just uh, stupendously huge. So that is the state of the art in military engineering, in naval engineering, in marine engineering. Yes, you can make underwater tunnels that actual mammoth military submarines can sail through. Um, now I have documentation from the literature that um, from the from the United States Navy from 1966 that already then. The Navy was thinking of doing doing that and and planning for it with their so-called rock site concept, uh, which entailed actually um, in their in their scheme 
making manned uh, undersea bases down in the bedrock beneath the seafloor, hundreds of miles out to sea. Now, there are illustrations that uh, graphically depict those plans. I actually have uh, a fair number of them in my latest book, which I obtained from a former U.S. Navy um, illustrator who was attached to this uh, working group, this research and design team at China Lake Naval Ordnance Test Station in California back in the 1960s, tasked specifically with uh, coming up with plans for this type of facility. And and in his illustrations, you, you can see uh, plainly that even then, almost half a century ago, they were planning to bring their um, nuclear submarines right into these underwater bases through tunnels, through these mammoth airlocks, and to actually dock, dock their submarines, submarines, not just one or two, but four or five, six submarines at a time. And you even mentioned on your book that uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, there are some disguised as oil platforms, right? I think right? so. Um, that's the buzz that I get, um, that uh, there are undersea bases in the Gulf of Mexico, Mexico, not only there, but that they are there. And that in some cases, not every um, oil production platform is purely and simply an oil production platform, that they can be and sometimes are used for other purposes as well. Understand that uh, these these structures are huge. They're the, the the diameter of their legs can be bigger around than the size of a house. Uh, they're just unbelievably large. So theoretically, they could be an elevator in one of those legs, right? Well, more, more, I'm talking more than theoretically because, in, in fact, a lot of these platforms do have elevators in their legs uh, to take personnel and equipment up and down from the production platform down inside the legs because uh, the legs will oftentimes have machinery and instruments inside them that need to be maintained or repaired or serviced. And so you need to send technicians and mechanics down there to do that. Of course, once you actually have this structure, this big oil production platform anchored into the seafloor, if you wanted to, there would be nothing in theory or in practice from building an elevator shaft that would just keep going down into the seafloor. So yes, that would definitely be one way that you could access a sub-sea floor environment. Um, my guess is that that does happen. And you mentioned the Parsons Company as a, one of the main contractors of these bases. Did you see the name Bechtel anywhere while doing your research? Well, I don't know. Oh, Bechtel? Yes, of course. Yes, Be yes. Bechtel is, is a known um, constructor of facilities of all kinds, from A to Z for American government agencies, both civil agencies and military. And Bechtel also works very closely with other other Fortune 500 companies. So, of course, uh, I've absolutely seen Bechtel's name pop up. For example, I can give you a specific instance. In the run-up, let me preface these remarks by saying, um, I think a lot of people have the idea that wars happen, kind of by accident. No. Let me tell you, wars do not just sort of happen uh, by accident. Wars are made to happen for specific reasons. 
by powerful players behind the scenes and also powerful players not so behind the scenes. But wars are made to happen. More than that, the planning for major wars takes place years, even decades in advance because a major war requires a lot of industrial infrastructure, uh, not just to start it, but to wage it and to keep it going. So you don't set that up overnight. It doesn't just happen. You have to set all of that into motion years, even decades in advance. This was certainly the case with the uh, Gulf War against the regime of Saddam Hussein um, already in in the first instance. Um, Back in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s, years before the outbreak of war against Saddam Hussein's uh, regime, Bechtel went into Saudi Arabia and built a series of what I understand is f- f- was five very deeply ver- buried, very sophisticated, high-tech underground bases out in the Saudi desert. And if anyone knows, any of your listeners know about Saudi Arabia, quite a, lar- quite a large amount of the surface area of Saudi Arabia is just a vast expanse of harsh desert. Right. Well, the Saudis built us a series of five deeply buried, large, high-tech, very sophisticated, cutting-edge underground bases there. And they were designed for use uh, in the event of war against Iraq. So all of this was uh, set up long before uh, George Bush sent American troops over uh, to that theater of operations. Now. I also have to say that when you read these statements from Storm and Norman, General Norman Schwarzkopf, Schwarzkopf, yeah, yeah, who was the commanding general for the American side during that war, he spent most of that war deep underground in those Saudi bunkers, directing the war from there. That's so interesting. But we have to take our one and only break. This is so fascinating. We have so much more to cover. His latest book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files, Dr. Richard Souter. How do people get in touch with this book and all the other publications that you have, Richard? Well, they can go to keyholepublishing.com uh, slash souter.html. And uh, all of my stuff is there. In fact, if they just go to keyholepublishing.com, they will see a prominent link on that page to my Uh, most recent book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files. So all of my books are there. All of my materials are there. And uh, if you're new new to this subject and you really want to know what's going on and get the low down and you can afford it, I encourage you to buy um, all of my books. I don't know anywhere else that you can find this information in one place that has been presented uh, as succinctly as I have. Um, I'm pretty well uniquely the only person doing exactly what I do. I don't know why that is. Anyone really could do what I have done. It's just that no one but me has. Maybe it was the bone lady that made you know, uh, a download to your brain. You know, I, I, you know that, that, that could be. And I've wondered about this because um, it is true. I'm, I'm off on what some people would think, I guess, of uh, quixotic quests. You know, we've all read about uh, Don Quixote and his... Um, Sancho Panza. Yes, his sidekick and uh, their, um, all of their um, 
you know, escapades uh, centuries ago, uh, tilting at windmills and all of the rest. But um, I am not tilting at windmills. I have found uh, real hard reality. It may be hidden, it may be out of sight, but it's not out of my mind because of the research I've done. And because it's in my mind as opposed to out of my mind, I have had the presence of mind to write the books that I have. And in a sense, they're my gift to you and to anyone who wants to avail him or herself of the information in them. So if you have the money and you have the interest, by all means, buy them and read them, and you will begin to think deep thoughts that probably probably never occurred to you before. I have to tell you, they didn't occur to me before I did this research and wrote these books either. And... I have to tell you, everyone, it is a gift, and it is a gift also to have Dr. Richard Sutter on the show. It has taken me over one year, and you know that when I want to focus on a specific topic, it takes me a lot of time until I find the right person, and I think we found Dr. Richard Sutter to be the right person. So a lot coming up next. We have left the next part. This is when we're going to be getting really deep, no pun intended, into the subject matter. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Bradley Lockerman, and you are listening to Veritas.